When the frozen chosen of Mongo drums and the Lord of the Dance, we did pretty good, actually. <laughs> this is our third week looking at Matthew's compilation of Jesus' sayings that were woven into what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount, in which Matthew makes clear seeing the large crowds that had followed Jesus because of not only what Jesus said, but also because of Jesus' healings, Matthew makes clear that Jesus climbed the mountaintop, as did Moses, drew his disciples to him, sat down, and began to teach them while the large crowds were scattered around on the perimeter. And in this teaching, Matthew wants us to know that it is about finding and living out of what he calls the kingdom of heaven. Not just when we die and go to heaven, but at hand, now, in our midst, present, every day. For Matthew, this kingdom of heaven is about being blessed by God. Blessed are those who, he begins with his Beatitudes. Even when we don't feel like it, like when we mourn, are persecuted, or poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is about living in this state of grace, about knowing forgiveness and peace and shalom. It's about a non-anxious, non-violent sense of fullness, of, of completeness, of being and having enough of reconciliation between ourselves and God and between ourselves and each other and even between ourselves and ourselves. For Jesus, this is the goal of life. And for us who are presumably disciples of Christ, we call ourselves Christians, it should be our goal too. Granted, not all of us really want to sign on to all of this. We really don't want to invest that much to enlist in this kind of discipleship where, like the Marines, our whole way of life will be drastically changed in order that we might be made into a few good men and women. In which case, that's fine, we may vacillate, vacillate back and forth, but in which case, we might be more like the crowds who are gathered around the disciples just listening in on what this Christian faith is all about. But for those of us, and I don't always include myself in this, but for those of us who do, who really want to find the kingdom of heaven, the Sermon on the Mount gives us our marching orders. These words of Jesus guide and shape how we are to live with God and with each other. They teach us what to do and even how to do it in order to follow Christ and enter this kingdom. One more thing, there has developed in the church, the Protestant church especially, a misunderstanding that since we are all saved by grace, that God loves us and forgives us no matter what we do, then what we do doesn't really matter. Someone said, God loves forgiving. We love sinning. The world is admirably arranged. But in fact, nothing can be further from the truth. 
The words of Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount point out that since we are saved by grace, then much is expected and required of us. Given the gift of God's love and forgiveness, we are called to respond appropriately. Otherwise, the gift sits idly by, like a new bicycle never ridden. So it is, through God's love and our grateful response to that love, that the kingdom of heaven is found. And this morning's passage makes this crystal clear. Reading from the 17th verse of the 5th chapter of Matthew until the 26th verse, may God open up to us an understanding of this word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus said. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. The story goes, and I think it was Mark Twain, although I might be mistaken, that when he was seen reading a Bible, which was unlike him because he was agnostic, seen reading a Bible, someone called him on it and asked him what he was doing, and his response was, well, I'm looking for loopholes. He did not find any if he was reading the Sermon on the Mount. Earlier this week at our staff meeting, we were looking at this passage as part of our devotional together, sitting there struggling with how hard these sayings are. And one person said, of course they are hard. The law of God is hard. The law of love is hard. It's the hardest thing of all. In fact, it's so hard, it's impossible. God gave us this law, they said, so that we will be convicted Then God sent Jesus Christ so that we will be forgiven and saved. Now this is true in orthodox theology. It's really John Calvin's first use of the law that we will be convicted. It's quite orthodox. But I have to say I'm not quite sure I buy it. 
anymore. To be honest, to me it seems like a setup. God gives us something to live by that God knows we cannot, then judges us for it so that then we can make ourselves saved by the life and atoning death of Jesus Christ. It's like judging our young children for not acting like adults, then doing something for them that lets them know we love them anyway. It's a double bond, a double bind. I'm starting to see that these hard sayings of Jesus, especially this Sermon on the Mount, is not impossible at all for us to live into For nothing is impossible for God. And with God's grace and through God's Spirit, we are given what it takes. Here's what I mean. The process of getting ready for my sabbatical, which will begin April 25th. I've still got several months before I leave. And I will return, I promise, on August the 11th. In the process of preparing for this, one of the things I hope to do is to learn to see the world differently, to perceive the world like an artist, not through my left brain, wordy, intellectual side, but more right brains, as an artist sees it. And I have already started trying to do this enough to know how hard it is. It's quite painful learning how to draw and paint It is incredibly difficult, and it takes practice and skill and hard work and patience and passion, but especially it takes teachers to show me how to do it. Now, of course, I could just go online and order from Amazon a paint-by-the-numbers set, sit down and fill it in with all the right paint in all the right places, and I would have a painting. However, I would not be an artist. I would not have learned what an artist knows, that is, how to see a landscape, a still life, or a figure so precisely, so microscopically in detail that all you want to do is express its awe and wonder in a a way that somehow captures whatever it is about that thing that moved you in the first place. To do this takes work, hard work and time, even sometimes a lifetime. But it is not impossible for us, any of us, if we are obedient, disciplined, and persistent, and we have a good teacher. I think this is also true about the discipline of becoming a disciple, a Christian, an artist in the way of Jesus. We can just choose to do it by the numbers, of course, obeying all the little moral, ethical, and legal rules that we think we have to follow. We go to church. We serve on a committee or two. We give, unfortunately, the average of 2% of our income away after which we might have something that on the surface at least looks Christian, an authentic Christian disciple, but underneath we all know the numbers are still there. 
our authenticity is a sham, and I speak for myself as much as any, and we know what a pretense we really are. This morning's passage, Jesus sets us straight from such denial and nonsense. He could care less of this pretense of what we look like on the outside. Instead, he goes to the very depths, the heart in each of us, and paints clearly the picture of what authentic Christianity truly looks like on the inside. Valentine's Day was Friday, and we all know deep down that it's not about going through the motions and buying a card for someone or taking them out to dinner if you have a partner or looking like there's something there, even in some cases there's really not. It's about finding instead the depth of love and commitment that if not there still was there. It's about loving each other even when you don't feel like it. It's about celebrating with each other the gift of your relationship even when it's almost impossible. By the way, You might need to know that Valentine's Day comes from the Roman soldier by the name of Valentinius who had become a follower of Jesus. And he grew to love Jesus so deeply that he made two decisions that cost him his life. The first was that he no longer would bow at the name of Caesar, but only to the name of Christ. And the second was that he refused to kill his enemies because Jesus had told him, to love them instead. And of course, then, he was executed by the Roman army for his idolatry and disobedience. Love, in practice, demands all, without which, as the Apostle Paul said, we are just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. True, authentic discipleship is really, really hard. But it is not impossible. This morning's passage, I think, makes this clear. Jesus starts off by exclaiming that he had come not to abolish the Jewish law and the prophets, but instead to fulfill them. That is to expand them from the law of living by the numbers into a law of love. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, they were the most legalistic, the best of the best in living by the law and being righteous. If your righteousness does not exceed scribes and Pharisees, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. And then he raises the bar so high on what this art of Christianity looks like, it almost demoralizes us. As if a painting teacher tells you that you will never be like Monet or Rembrandt, you might as well give it up. But it doesn't, you see, still. It holds us accountable to a very high order of love that is in us. And it demands everything, everything, therefore, pales in comparison once it is discovered. And then just as we're reeling from this challenge, he raises the bar even more. He takes six laws from the Torah and offers an antithesis to them, expanding on them not only to include the living of our outside, but also what goes on inside our hearts and our souls and our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and our psychological states. Ouch! 
Now he's gone to meddling. You have heard it said, he said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you are liable to judgment. If you hear that my voice is strained, it's because I was screaming as loud as I could at the television screen yesterday when the Carolina Tar Heels were presumably about to lose to Pittsburgh at that stupid, foolish referee. There you have it. And then when I wanted to watch something else, the stupid TV was locked and loaded on nothing but the Dunn trial. I couldn't even watch the PGA tournament. And so I got on the phone and I called Channel 46, so excuse me, 47 News. And I started screaming at the guy because nobody who wants to watch golf can watch it because of this stupid trial. And he says, uh, sir, who are you trying to call? And I said, Channel 47 News. He says, well, you've got the wrong number. (laughs) We provide Channel 47 with the news, but we're not it. I'm so sorry, I said. Certainly, if the use of the law first use is to convict us, bam, I was knocked to my knees, guilty as charged, as we all are, unless for some reason we are so narcissistically pathological that we refuse to accept the fact that we are complicit. But the grace of God and the power and spirit of God just knocks us to our knees. It does not knock us out. It humbles us. But it also inspires and engages us to get back on our feet and do something to reconcile the brokenness. Yes, we all have feelings of malice and contempt and anger at others. Everyone does. The point is, then what? How do we act on them? And it's murder if we act on them with malice. It's redemption if we act on them with love. This, Jesus says, is the way to the kingdom of God. And if you are offering your guilt at the alt- guilt, woo, your gift at the altar, leave your guilt gift there and go and find the one who has accused you and seek them out and try to reconcile it. Doesn't really say how far we're called to go to do this. There are no limits, apparently. Just go and do it. And if you caught the focus of this, the focus was you who are being accused, whether rightly or wrongly, are called to go and find the accuser and do what you can to reconcile it, to seek peace and reconciliation, or we may end up in prison for the rest of our lives with an infinite sum to pay. Now, Jesus Let me see if I can say this in a way that won't put you off. This is hyperbole for Jesus. It, in a way, it's almost playful. He uses this excessive language in order to get our attention. Like later, when he's talking about the issue of adultery, he says, 
If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better to lose your eye than your whole body. If your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to lose your arm than your whole body. It's hyperbole. It's hyper uh, language to get our attention. He doesn't mean it literally. But nevertheless, it shows its urgency. By the way, it may help to know in the issue of adultery that it is according to men only who can commit adultery. For women, you're apparently off the hook. For women were property in those days, and adultery in the legal sense of the word means knowing your neighbor's wife in the biblical sense. There's a lot to be said about that. I didn't read it today, but you're welcome to. And then you can call me up if you want some clarification. It turns out that Jesus, of course, was the master artist, a genius beyond everyone understanding what goes on in our human heart and what stands between us in our personal relationships. For everything in this is about our personal relationships. Jesus saw how bigotry and malice and jealousy and envy and miscommunication and misunderstanding and hurt And standing on our own prideful feet stands in the relationships with each other and with God. He knew better than any that our lack of personal awareness, our denial, our need to blame, the projection of our own darkness, need I go on, our paranoia, our refusal to look at ourselves as closely as we look at our neighbors. He knew us. And while we might say that this is the instinctual response in each of us, I must say to you, no, it is on one level, but not the deepest. The deepest response, you see, is to live out of the light of God as the image of God in which that image has been given to us. And when that image is engaged and inspired by the spirit and grace of God, we then become capable of living a new way of life. As Christian artists, greater than anything we could imagine. On some level, we are ugly ducklings. But on an even deeper level, if we are willing to open ourselves up to the love and forgiveness of God, and if we are willing to start growing up into the creatures that we were created to be, we will grow up into the beautiful swan that God sees in us. And then we will begin to see the beautiful swan in each other as well. It's the kingdom of heaven. Or, we can just go through the motions, faith by numbers, live out the pretense of the picture of ourselves, in which case we might as well pluck out our eyes and cut off our arms Since becoming an artist at being Christian really doesn't matter, we won't need them anymore. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.